If you're going to run a great business, you've got to have great people, and finding them is a huge part of that puzzle. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter.com has a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. It identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there. You can find them, but ZipRecruiter is how. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. One more time, try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. Once you check out their interface and you see those candidates come right into your inbox, you're going to realize it's a great choice. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck you are entering the freedom hut so roseanne gets fired the show gets canceled it's a teachable moment they tell us but you know what the lesson they want us to take from it is it's trump's fault This is Trump derangement syndrome once again on display by the media. Also, Trey Gowdy seems absolutely dedicated to uh, helping the Democrat Mueller spygate probe. What the heck is going on with him? Also, Kim Kardashian at the White House talking about prison reform and the left's making fun of her for it. But it's no laughing matter. We'll talk about that and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Live from the swamp. We got to get some cool swamp sound effects going here for the show. Maybe some gators. Gators make a noise. I don't even know what it. I can't think of what it is off the top of my head, but they can make some noises. Uh, a fan boat noise would just sound like I've got a big fan in the studio, so that doesn't that doesn't make any sense. But some swamp noises. You know the the frogs that you think of with this. I don't know whatever noises you get for the swamp. Point is, I'm here in D.C. Very pleased and excited to be here with all of you. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out, spending some time with me, as always. We've got quite a show for you today. We're going to cover a lot of ground, and one of my promises to you is that because I uh, am later on in the day, I've got more time to research, more time to to think, more time to uh, dig in to what I'm going to discuss with you on the show uh, than a lot of other folks. So I, I think of it as, a, as an advantage in that regard. And we're going to talk about some things you probably haven't heard elsewhere, like Israel right now, closer to war with Hamas than at any time in at least the last three or four years. Right now. Huge barrage of missiles, artillery, uh, artillery, mortars, stuff getting fired into Israel. Multiple places. Media doesn't seem to want to talk about that. Not, not a lot of discussion. Uh, you know, they need to wait and see if there's an Israeli response. You see, it's always the counterattack from Israel to stop the rockets from being fired, to stop the mortar rounds from getting popped off and you know landing in people's backyards in Israel. Uh, that's what the media wants to report on. Oh, the Israeli response, the overreach of the Israelis in response. 
Also, a, a free speech trial in the U.K. that's gotten a lot of attention from some folks on social media. A guy named Tommy, Tommy Robinson. Gotten thrown in prison. This is the United Kingdom, right? This isn't in, this isn't in Riyadh. This isn't in Pyongyang. He's getting thrown in prison for standing outside of a courthouse in the U.K. and live streaming. Because they've got some funky rules there, but also some political considerations about what they want people to know about, what they want the public in the UK to talk about. And the moment you start looking at uh, issues of, well, multiculturalism and how it tries to shield very heinous crimes in the UK that fall within a Muslim immigrant group there, you get into some very fissile territory, right? A lot of stuff coming together. So we'll talk about that. We'll actually be joined by our friend Raheem Kassam later on from. He's going to call in from Rome. I was telling him before, I was like, can we get you to, can we get you to, you know, put down, put down the gnocchi for a couple of minutes, you know, stop enjoying your crostini and your bellini and other things that end in I and tell us what the heck is going on in the UK. And also we'll ask him about Italy right now, because you may not care about Italy, but Italy cares about you. Our, uh, our stock market took quite a hit because there's some, I shouldn't say rumors, some, well, but they are, I guess they are rumors that the Euro, is Italy going to stay with the Euro or they haven't, you know, they got problems over there. Big, big problems. Fourth largest economy in the Eurozone, by the way, you know, Greece freaked everybody out, but Greece is like the second cousin that barely gets invited to the wedding. You know what I mean? Italy is like in the center at at the at the big table, you know, at the table for like the the father of the bride and the the groomsmen and all that stuff. I've got weddings in the brain. I've got my my amazing little sister's wedding coming up this weekend. I'm very very excited about that. I'll be up in New York City for it. I'll be sure to post some photos. If you're listening to this, by the way, if you want, follow me on Instagram. Some of you're probably like, "Who's Miss Molly?" Well, she's on my Instagram. So is my family, my wonderful French bulldog. It's my family's dog, but I consider her mine. Tallulah. You can check all that out on Instagram. Uh, so this is all what I'm saying. We're going to cover things you haven't heard elsewhere. Most likely no other show. Maybe if you watched Fox 12 hours a day, you might have seen one or two segments on some of that. But uh, I think that uh, we'll have some new stuff for you. Oh, and the prison reform segment I want to do for you, I think you'll find very worthwhile and compelling. No surprise that the left-wing media is willing to trash prison reform in order to trash Trump, right? Or, or just to, ju- they're against it because Trump is for it. Because Jared Kushner, senior advisor to the president and son-in-law, has gotten the House to pass a prison reform bill because they're looking into this issue, which is going to disproportionately benefit uh, minorities who are serving very long prison sentences and then you know, need help once they've served their time to you know, reintegrate into their communities. and Because they, they don't care about any of that, though. It's Trump and Trump's people are pushing it, therefore it must be bad. It's you know, the media is disgraceful in this stuff. We'll talk more about that. You know, yesterday, and and I know that uh, I know that passions are running high on this topic. It, it felt like well, Roseanne is going to be a topic of conversation for twenty four hours. I saw that she, I think the defense today was that she was she didn't know Valerie Jarrett. Uh, was black. She thought she, you know, I mean, I don't really want to get into that particularly. I think that, you know, meaning her latest defense or her latest effort to explain herself. 
there are two other things now that the corollaries or the uh, the follow on discussions, right? The, the things that go along with the initial, you know, you, you, you crossed. A, she crossed a line. She's paying a price. OK. Then you get into, well, hold on a second. Media doesn't want to just let that go. And forget about the fact that Roseanne has actually for much of her life uh, espoused leftist views, has been very anti-Christian, anti-conservative, uh, you know. That, that is being left out of the conversation right now. People aren't having much of a talk about that. But what is a much more valuable target for the left than just raising the issue or, or raising Roseanne's comments as evidence for years and years to come? They will cite this as evidence that, you know, we are in a, a racist society, that America hasn't made the progress on race relations that many of us think we have, and, you know, we need... We need to tackle white privilege, and we need more diversity seminars. We need more Starbucks, three-hour multiculturalism, non-bias training, or whatever they're calling it, right? Because in three hours, I'm sure we can eliminate the prejudice of a workforce with uh, tens of thousands of employees. Uh, so there's that. That's one component of this. But they don't really just want to make this about the comments that Roseanne made, they want to make it about, oh, there's no surprise here. It's Trump's fault. I couldn't believe this. I kept seeing this const- uh, this construct out there. Different media outlets would say, well, let's all be very clear that only Roseanne is responsible for her comments, but it's kind of Trump's fault. <laughs> you go, wait, 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 hold on a second. If Roseanne's responsible, that means she's responsible. You can't do this this... This pivot, this sleight of hand, that's what they're doing, though. Oh, you know, it's Roseanne's responsible for the comments, but I think Trump created the blah 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 It's Trump's fault. It's amazing how they do it. I got to say, Valerie Jarrett herself has since come out, though. The woman who had the racist comments directed at a racist writing directed at her by Roseanne, she came out and said it's Trump's fault. I'm like, uh-uh. You know, you can say whatever you want about Roseanne, you, you forgive her, you don't forgive her, you know, she's terrible, you, you think that she should get a second chance, whatever, whatever, that's that's Valerie Jarrett's call, right? Fine, fair enough. But you don't get to say the president's at fault here. I'm sorry, without, I mean, you can say it, but without people responding. <laughs> you don't get to say, well, you know, Trump said something bad, I mean, or, or uh, Roseanne said something bad, but this falls at Trump's view. We have a whole media, pl- play our media montage of this, please, Brandon. When you have a president... When he's did everything he could to do dog whistling around this issue of race, people like Roseanne feel they're empowered. Do you feel like this president has set a tone that has made people feel increasingly empowered to say those kinds of things? I think tone does start at the top. There's a strain of intolerance we've seen uh, in this Trump age that Roseanne was expressing to to fill the moral void that's been left by the deficiencies in the White House. Um, I was as shocked as anybody else uh, when there was actually consequences. Like consequences for racism in America? It could be that this moral collapse uh, inside of our political system, and especially uh, inside the White House, is being counterbalanced now uh, by people uh, you know, in mainstream media, mainstream corporations. This right here, this kind of stuff, is a direct byproduct of how Donald Trump behaves, the well, things that he To that said. point. Oh, guys, yes, come on. We're not going to hold the president. We're going to we're going to hold the president 
responsible for individual comments. I just want to know, okay, if this is now the new rule, that presidential commentary and individual action can be directly linked and, in fact, a causation established, what do we make of the rhetoric under the Obama administration, some of which President Obama dabbled in himself, that was anti-cop, when there were police assassinations of police officers occurring, places like Dallas and others, by people who specifically cited the Black Lives Matter movement and the high-level officials, including at the White House, who were giving credibility to that movement and the notion that cops are racist and hunting down black men for sport across the country. You'll notice the media doesn't make that. They won't tie those things together at all. Oh, no, that's just one crazy person. It has nothing to do with the overall movement. That's just one crazy person, not the administration's fault for the tone that they're setting with this. Not Eric Holder's fault, for example, for indulging the notion that even though Mike Brown attacked an officer in Ferguson, it was the overall racism of the police department that was to blame. You'll notice that they're not they're You want to talk about double standards and hypocrisy. Look at it, how, how it plays out in, in this level. You know, we don't hold all Bernie Sanders supporters accountable for the fact that a Bernie Sanders supporter tried to kill multiple members of not just Congress, but conservative Republican members of Congress at a baseball game just mere miles from where I'm sitting right now. But they're going to say that it's Trump's fault that an, an actress who is has a history of volatility and saying grotesque things and really trashing conservatives, by the way. So, you know, this is why I always try to caution when I say you, I mean us, right? Keep us grounded in the caution of don't don't get excited every time a celebrity, you know, looks in your direction and shows a little leg, if you know what I mean. Don't don't think that, oh gosh, conservatism has finally been embraced by this pop culture figure unless you really know who you're dealing with and who you're talking about, because they will disappoint you, they will turn on you, they are not necessarily authentic or real or steeped in conservative ideology at all. So I, I try to just keep that caution in place. And Roseanne is a perfect example of, you know, she's, playing, she's on this show, and I have to say, I, I always resented this. And maybe I'm a, a little bit of a... I don't know. I, I'm. I kind of feel like I'm on my own on this one. But I always resented before, and this is completely separate from the discussion we're having about about Roseanne's racist comments and the media thing. But I, this is a digression. But I think it's an important one. I kind of resented that. Like, what Roseanne is our representative of conservatives and a conservative family. That's what we're offered up in the media. Really? Some of you have pointed out, by the way, uh, you know, Last Man Standing. Yeah, that that I'll take. I watched it, by the way, on your recommendation. You know. It's a nice, nice family. Funny stuff going on. Really, Roseanne, we're, we're that, that's what we're supposed to take. She's our representative of you know, what a, what a conservative or or Trump era, you know, red state mom is like. I'm sorry, I know a lot of moms in red states, and there are nothing like Roseanne. So there's that for me too. I, I've I've always had that's always sat poorly with me that this is oh yeah Roseanne she's the representative of this show is going to be the representative of the right and no. No, I don't, I don't accept that. I mean, other people can if they want, but, well, obviously now it's gone. A couple of hundred people, I think, they say have lost their jobs. Remember yesterday I told you, I feel bad for the people who lost their jobs. It's true. A lot of people got fired now. I think they should keep the show and just change the name. I don't know if that's possible or not, but I think people would still watch, right? She's gone. Change the name. It happens all the time. Uh, I know I got a little bit uh, 
Oh, I just got a little fired up about that. It just it just makes the whole thing makes me mad when they're really trying to tarnish Trump because of the comments of one actress on Twitter. It's just it's just desperate. And you, I, we played that montage for you. We'd have to look hard to find it. When is a president responsible for the actions of any individual in society that are heinous? The answer is when it's a Republican. When it's a Democrat, we can't make those connections. You want to talk about double standards, there's that. But then there's also a double standard for why can Keith Olbermann still have a job? Why can Bill Maher say whatever the hell he wants about whoever he wants and still has a job? And doesn't suffer these doesn't suffer these consequences. You can tell me it's a question of degree and severity. Okay. We start looking back at some of the Keith Olbermann stuff. It's pretty severe, folks. And he just got rehired by ESPN, which, by the way, is owned by Disney. Which, by the way, owns ABC, which just fired Roseanne. We will get into this and much more. I really, you know, folks, I, I want to hear from a lot of you on this one. If you've got thoughts on it, uh, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Prison reform coming up. Some of those interesting overseas topics. A little bit more on immigration. Show is uh, racked and stacked, so stay right there. He's simply pointing out the bias. The president's pointing to the hypocrisy in the media, saying that the most horrible things about this president, uh, and nobody addresses it. Where was Bob Iger's apology to the White House staff for Jamel Hill calling the president and anyone associated with him a white supremacist? To Christians around the world for Joy Bear calling Christianity a mental illness. Where was the apology for Kathy Griffin going on a profane rant against the president on The View after a photo showed her holding president? President Trump's decapitated head. And where was the apology from Bob Iger for ESPN hiring Keith Olbermann after his numerous expletive-laced tweets attacking the president as a Nazi and even expanding Olbermann's role after that attack against the president's family? This is a double standard that the president is speaking about. No one is defending her comments. They're inappropriate, but that's what the point that he was making. See, if you're on the left, you can get away with pretty much anything. That doesn't mean that if you're on the right, you should get away with anything, meaning you should get away with saying anything. I do not defend Roseanne's comments at all. I condemn them, and that's not a brave thing to say. It's an obvious thing to say, okay? It's, it, there's no, like, oh, well, you know, I'm not saying that, like, some big, oh, look at me, right? I mean, it's, you can't say that. There's some things you can't say, right? There are certain things that I think all of us understand. If you said to your boss or if you say it in public, you're going you're gonna to face professional consequences. That all said... I don't know what the what some people on the left can't say. I don't know where the rules are for them about anything. Uh, you know, Bill Maher on his show uh, has said stuff that I'm like, okay. I mean, I, I I hesitate to even give you. You know, I, I don't want to say bleepity bleep bleep or I, I can't say things because we're on the radio show here. But if you go back and check, uh, Bill Maher said things. He has said words that white people aren't supposed to say. Uh, you know, uh, I, I can, I know that as a conservative, you could certainly couldn't I mean, I didn't say it in any context. And Keith Olbermann is just a lunatic. And by the way, based on people I know who've worked with him, a really mean, bad person. <laughs> so I don't know why he's, there's so many hardworking sports journalists out there. ESPN's bring this guy back. ESPN is MSNBC with sports. Now plays a joke. You know, I, I, I can't feel badly for it given that it's losing viewership and, you know, it's revenues way down everything because they're doing things like hiring Keith Olbermann. Crazy town. 
who's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Got some lines lit. Let's take a call or two. We got Brad in Georgia with us now. Hey, Brad. Hey. How are you um, doing? It's first time for calling to a radio show. It's pretty cool. Oh, um, thank you for calling this one. Hey, I know, right? Um, I'm really tired of people you like talking common sense, you know? I've, I'm... I'm an Army veteran, and, you know, just talking common sense is, you know, going to teach people things, you know, the right way. So, I'm, really, I'm, yes, sir. I'm really glad of what, you know, you do, and I appreciate, you know, all done, and you, you know, we're the CIA and stuff, and I pretty much all that, and because I'm tired of mainstream media, you know, I mean, you, well, know, you, you, you came to the right place, America. my friend. My, my call screener told me you wanted to discuss ESPN. Oh, yeah, because I can't watch it anymore. I used to watch it growing up. I used to love it, and I can't uh, can't watch it anymore, basically, except for college football, you know? I watch college football, and that's about it. If I go there's a lot, There's a that, lot of commentary on it now, right? A lot, of, a lot of political commentary in the form of a sports report. Exactly. Why? It doesn't make any sense at all. It, it makes, you know, little to any sense. It's like, why are you talking about, I want to get away from that, you know, because politics sometimes – I listen to you for politics. I don't listen to you for politics. You know? Well, you're you're a wise man, sir. Get much better politics here. Thank you very much, Brad, for calling in from Georgia. First time caller to a radio show. I appreciate it. Shields high. Let me before I move. I want to talk about the uh, Trey Gowdy situation because you know Gowdy. Look, I'm just going to say Gowdy's been letting me down. Buck, I'm sorry I let you down. No, I think he's let me down a little bit. I really do. Yeah, I think he's. Uh, I don't take it personally, but I, I kind of expected more from him on some of this stuff. I, you know, I, I think he's, I think he's drinking some of the uh, some of what the establishment wants him to here, and I don't think it's a good idea. Now, but but hold that thought for just a moment, because there's one other component of the Roseanne double standard situation that we're we're just spending a little time on here, and that is that uh, not only do you have people in the media that are saying that Roseanne tweets something racist, it's Trump's fault. But they're also now using what Roseanne, who is not a conservative, not a Republican, not somebody that, you know, shares a political... And even if she were, by the way, this wouldn't be fair, but she isn't even those things. And they're saying, well, she is... I'll just read you. Chris Hayes, primetime host at MSNBC wrote this, Roseanne's problem turned out to be that she far too authentically represented the actual worldview of a significant chunk of the Trump base. That's just a... That's just a libel. It is. I'd say it's a slander, but it wasn't spoken, it was written, right? It's a libel. It's an unfair attack, and it's the kind of thing that I think factors into why the Republicans are going to do much better in these midterms coming because people really don't like this attitude. And when I mean people, I'm talking about folks in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, who went for Trump this time, who were part of the Trump wave. They believed in making America great again. They, they were in for all that, who had previously voted for Obama. Not once, but twice, in many cases. And this is based on the research and the polling that lots of folks have been doing since that election and before it, too. So how do you think some of them feel? 
And how do you think people in the Trump movement who know that a lot of their fellow Trump supporters were Obama voters, how do you think they feel when they're being told, yeah, well, you guys are all actually just a bunch of racists? Based on what? It is such a, a degrading and unfair attack. You know, call, I, I try to remind people of this as often as I, as I can when this subject matter comes up. You know, calling someone a racist in our society in terms of where you kind of fall on the on the scale of di- of of public disdain you know racist is just maybe below child molester you know and 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 which is you know really the you know that's the very top and racist is right up there just a little bit below that you know if you're really a racist you are going to be so so to run around calling people a racist without cause is so unfair. It would be like running around saying that somebody is a is a child molester without cause. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't do that, right? Because that's destroying someone's reputation. That's destroying someone's character. It's taking away their their honor in the public sphere. You can't do that, right? Unless you've got cause. But with with the charge of racism, they'll do it all the time, every day, and twice on Sunday. They do not care. It's a political weapon, and it's one that isn't as effective as it used to be, but you see they still have this reaction left. They still have this impulse to deploy accusations of racism unfairly for political purposes. It's what they do because it's effective. It's dirty. It's dirty politics, but in a lot of ways it works. Look, it it scares people. You don't want me to call the racist, right? But in the ballot box, you know, when it comes to the uh, being in the ballot box, we remember, people remember the accusations, the allegations made against them for their political votes in the past. And I, so I, I think this, there'll be, uh, folks will remember this. There'll be a backlash to this. They will recall. The Democrats haven't said, the Democrats haven't come to grips with the fact that Trump actually has a message that resonates. They still think if they just call him a racist enough, if they call him a misogynist enough, and a traitor on top of all that, that they'll win elections. I think they are going to be sorely mistaken. I certainly hope they will be come this uh, midterm cycle. Uh, the, the, the Trey Gowdy phenomenon, you know what? I, I Let me, because I went a little longer here than I thought, let, let me go into uh, a quick hold here. And when we come back on the other side, I am going to address the very straightforward question. It's not just Trey Gowdy. Why do Republicans disappoint their own leave their own in the trenches, why do Republican politicians refuse to do what is necessary and I think what is responsible to defend their ideology and their party? We we have people who break ranks and hurt our side time and time again. You know, say what you will about the Democrats, but they're like the Borg from Star Trek, right? They, They move as one unit, one entity. They move with like a hive, a hive mind or a hive brain, right? They just all together, in lockstep for power. And Republicans are all, oh, you know, you know, I want to be the one who gets a nice article written about me in the New York Times or Politico. You know, I want to be that Republican. And they and they punk out. Uh, so why do why do Republicans have that problem? And more specifically, why am I seeing this stuff from Trey Gowdy today, which is troubling to say the least. Answers to that in just a moment. Stay with me. It was President Trump himself 
who said, number one, I didn't collude with Russia, but if anyone connected with my campaign did, I want the FBI to find that out. It looks to me like the FBI was doing what President Trump said, I want you to do, find it out. I am even more convinced that the FBI did exactly what my fellow citizens would want them to do when they got the information they got, and that it has nothing to do with Donald Trump. So Trey Gowdy's getting a lot of heat for that, and a lot of praise, of course. Democrats love it. They they are just doing a happy dance, because they're saying, see, Trey Gowdy is speaking the truth on this issue. Um, but they're also leaving out some part of this, too, right? He says this had nothing to do with Trump. They, they pretend that, that he didn't say that. So let's just put that out there. But he does say that the that these are fellow citizens, you and me, we would be happy if we knew what the FBI was doing. That the FBI was doing what they were supposed to do. Now, Trey Gowdy's a former prosecutor. Uh, if Trey Gowdy were a witness, right? I won't say he was the defendant here, but if you were a witness on the stand and he made that statement, I would ask him some questions if I were able to cross-examine. I would want to ask Trey Gowdy, okay, so if you were proud, if you were saying that we would be proud of what the FBI did with regard to investigating possible Russia-Trump campaign ties, why has the FBI been stonewalling, slow-rolling, obfuscating for eight, nine months now? Why does the FBI fight disclosure of information relating to this probe tooth and nail? Why does the FBI get found to be redacting information under the guise of it being necessary national security redaction when in reality it's old school bureaucrat CYA stuff or let's call it CYB because family show here cover your butt. That's what they're doing. Right. McCabe, $70,000 conference table. A lot more expensive than, what was it, uh, Ben Carson got in some heat for the uh, dining set or something in his office, right? A lot more expensive than that. Doesn't look good for McCabe. Especially doesn't look good for those Democrat media outlets that want to play the whole, what is this official charging on his card? What is that official charging on, on the government's dime? They redact it, though, under the guise of national security. It's not. And that's a violation of the regulations governing national security information. If we would be proud of what the FBI did there, why is the FBI so reticent to allow any disclosure, including to Congress, to the oversight authority here about what was going on? Shouldn't they be proud? Shouldn't they be happy? Talk to us about this. I'm asking these questions, and I know I can't get an answer from Trey Gowdy right now, but I think it's important to recognize that I, I don't care that Trey Gowdy is no longer running for office and you know is soon to be a former Republican congressman. I just care about the truth of what happened here with Russia with the Russia collusion probe and what the FBI was up to and I smell funky stuff. And I have for a long time and it keeps getting worse as we find out additional information. At no point in the last 12 months have I thought, "Oh wow, you know, that big revelation that just came out really makes the FBI and the DOJ look good here." It really makes them look good. You know, I'd wonder what Trey Gowdy will have to say about the Inspector General report that is soon to be released from the Department of Justice that undoubtedly will show what you and I already know, but this will be further proof, this will be further validation of our point of view. 
which is to say that uh, Hillary Clinton was bailed out by Comey and Loretta Lynch and the DOJ. In fact, the same people at the DOJ, some of the same people, made sure that the Democrat nominee for president did not face criminal charges despite blatantly red line crossing, breaking the law, uh, are the ones that were in charge of looking into the Trump campaign and its Russia ties. By the way, think about how flimsy the pretext has been so far for going at what Carter Page and George Papadopoulos. The Manafort thing, by the way, that's all a complete, that's a nothing burger so far. Okay, Manafort cheated on his taxes. By the way, I've seen, you know, Tapper and these other sanctimonious folks in the mainstream media. Oh, look at all the prosecutions. Yeah, look at the prosecutions from the Mueller probe. Nothing to do with Trump or his campaign. Not a single one. Had anything to do with the election, interfering in the election, colluding with Russians. It's all tax fraud, lying. You know, it's just grinding people down through the machinery and the tremendous prosecutorial powers of the federal government and of a rogue special counsel, which is what we have right now. Accountable effectively to no one. And I've seen the arguments about how it's unconstitutional. And by the way, I agree. I think it is unconstitutional. You have a de facto U.S. attorney who, hadn't, who didn't go through the process that a U.S. attorney has to go through. I think it's pretty straightforward, right? I mean, I'll, I'll leave the specific legal arguments that have been made by others uh, you know, out there. But I, I think that that is a compelling argument. doesn't mean that Democrats are going to ever accept it. They don't care what the Constitution says. They don't care what the law says. Just look at their positions on immigration. I don't care what the law is. The law is what they say it is. Without irony, they'll write pieces about how, you know, all the conservatives that are on the Supreme Court believe in the letter, the strict letter of the law. So what are the what are the lefties on the court? What do the Democrats on the Supreme Court believe in? Oh, we know what they believe in. Make it up as you go along. What do you think the law should say? That's what it says. It's very annoying to see Trey Gowdy do this. Uh, you know, Marco Rubio also saying this, and they don't give us any details, any specifics. I guess we're to believe that they've been shown all the stuff that the FBI doesn't want to show the White House, the executive branch, or, you know, congressional oversight authorities. That all of a sudden now they've gotten a, a real glimpse behind the curtain and they know what's going on. I'm sorry, I just, I just don't buy it. Um, and, you know, Gowdy spoke a little more about this. Play clip eight. Well, when the FBI comes into contact with information about what a foreign government may be doing in our election cycle, I think they have an obligation to run it out. I think the FBI, if they were at the table this morning, they would tell you Russia was the target and Russia's intentions toward our country were the target. The fact that two people who were loosely connected with the Trump campaign may have been involved uh, doesn't diminish the fact that Russia was the target. Okay. They're taking this to say, see what the FBI did was fine. What the FBI did was fine. Here's what here's the step then that the media won't take. And here's what all the, the, the temporary Trey Gowdy lovers out there aren't going to admit. Trey Gowdy's point here, as I think inartful and annoying as it may be, is this was really just about looking at what Russia was doing. These people associated with Trump were low level and, and there was no big... Well, then why the heck do we have a special counsel now that is looking specifically at election interference involving Trump and collusion with the Trump campaign to influence the election? Effectively, what he's saying is this is really about Russia, had nothing to do with Trump. 
Meanwhile, you and I are sitting here saying, well, hold on a second. Why are all these Trump people being investigated then? See, it doesn't add up. It can't be both. It can't be this was always about Russia, had nothing to do with Trump and his people. They were just tangential targets to all this. No big deal there. Nothing to see. FBI totally above reproach on this. And, oh, yeah, we should have this special counsel looking at Trump and all of his stuff. We know what they're looking for. We know what they're after. You can't hold these two views simultaneously. You can't believe the FBI did everything great on the up and up. It was fine. It was just about Russia. But, oh, here we are over a year into an investigation of Trump ties to and conspiracy with the Russians to affect the election which we still have zero evidence for, not a single bit, not a single data point to add into the mix to say, well, you know, maybe someone somewhere, not even Papadopoulos, not even Carter Page, not even these third-tier clowns attached to the Trump campaign have a a, a piece of information against them that has to do with collusion affecting the outcome. So while on the one hand you have all these media types celebrating, oh, look at Gowdy, he's speaking truth to Republicans, They're kind of forgetting a lot of what he says, but more importantly, they're forgetting what the implications of it are, which is even if Gowdy is right, and I don't believe he is the FBI's above reproach, based on what he is saying, the whole special counsel probe, as it relates to the Trump campaign, is a joke. Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One make, make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, my friends. A lot to discuss. Uh, prison reform. Justice reform, important issue, bipartisan issue, right? Uh, people look at the at the problems out there right now in our criminal justice system, and, and they understand that this needs another look. And you have a bipartisan basis for a lot of this. In fact, you also get some celebrity attention for it. Today, Kim Kardashian, one of many well-known Kardashians now, was at the White House. She was talking to uh, White House staff and the president about this uh, latest bill. Well, she was actually speaking about a specific case, um, and I'm sure the bill came up, which is known the First Step Act. But Alice Marie Johnson is a 63-year-old grandmother who is serving life without parole for a first-time nonviolent drug offense. Now, she was just part of the drug trafficking conspiracy. Uh, She understands and and accepts that she violated the law. She made a terrible mistake, but it was her first offense. Life without parole, folks. She is a mother of four, has six grandchildren and a great-grandchild. She is 63 years old, and there's a, a movement underway to get uh, to have the president grant her clemency. All right, so just early release. This is not, it's not uh, pardon, uh, pardoning her. It's not exoneration, certainly. She admits the crime, but it's let's let her out. It's been a law. She served 21 years and will never be able to get out of prison for a nonviolent drug offense. 
Uh, I, I think that mercy is a very important part of our criminal justice system. I think that a second chance uh, for people, especially when we're talking about nonviolent crimes, a second chance is very important in our criminal justice system. And I would like to think that there's a, a basic human decency that pushes aside a lot of the partisan rancor on this issue because, look, I want folks to be able to, you know, I, I, I look, I just, I just believe in mercy. You know, I, I believe in uh, when appropriate. It's a judgment call, right? There's no clear, bright lines to uh, just to delineate, you know, who should get mercy and who doesn't, right? Who should we throw the book at or who should we give a second chance to? It's, a, it's literally a case by case. Well, you'll notice that because Kardashian is, is involved in this, uh, there's a certain sneer in the tone of your favorite CNN White House correspondent, Jim Acosta, on this one. Play that clip, please. And yet here he comes out today and starts tweeting about Roseanne Barr. It just gets to the, uh, the lack of seriousness. Forget about the fact that Kim Kardashian is here at the White House today <laughs> and what planet that is uh, anything resembling normal, because it's not. Uh, she shouldn't be here talking about prison reform. It's very nice that she is here, but that, that's not a serious thing to, to have happened here at the White House. Oh, 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 oh really, Jim Acosta? Celebrity, celebrity power now and, and politics, that, that's, that's something that sh- we should all mock because I'm pretty sure Obama got a lot of visits from a lot of celebrities talking about issues, they thought, too, over the course of his presidency, not just like a high five and a photo op. So put that aside for a moment and then also look at Kim Kardashian's there. and She's trying to plead on this woman's behalf, a, a, a 63-year-old African-American you know, great-grandmother who has served 20 years in prison and would like to get out to actually see your grandchildren. Is that is, is funny to Jim Acosta, though, right? You know, you always have to remember with these Democrats, they pretend, these elitist Democrats pretend to care so much about the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed, about you know the, the, the plight of underprivileged minorities. But it's really just about the people engaging in the pretense right they feel good about themselves talking oh i care so much about you know minority communities i don't want minorities to have a choice about where they go to school though no 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 school choice no we don't want we don't want that no 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 no. that's bad i care so much about minority communities i don't want a a police tactics that are going to reduce crime if it looks like they're focusing too much on minority neighborhoods oh no no we can't we can't have that That that's bad they don't really care it's a pretense it's a fashion for them it's a fashion statement for Democrats in the media to care so much about minority communities and about incarceration as it disproportionately affects African-American and Latino communities in this country. And it just gets pushed aside once again when you when you can bash Trump, nothing else matters. So that's why Acosta is sneering about Kim Kardashian, who's there to advocate on behalf of an African-American great grandmother who spent 20 years in prison. Okay, so. You know, maybe Jim Acosta should just slow his roll a little bit there. But, you know, he's now a hero to the hashtag resistance. So there's that. You also haven't probably seen much in the way of coverage of this issue. But there is the First Step Act. It it has passed in the House. Uh, We'll see what happens in the Senate. And I'll give you a shortened version of it. It has to do with programs in place to reduce recidivism for inmates who are currently serving time. There's some good things in there. It it it, it handles uh, a whole bunch of different issues. It talks even about 
phone privileges that people should get or video conferencing privileges they should get if they're a part of certain programs. And it's essentially a bill that will try to make that will try to incentivize people to pull their lives together while they're serving their prison sentence and then help them put their lives back together after their prison sentence. I think this is a good thing. It's not a cure. It's not all-inclusive. It doesn't handle everything, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. And who wants to guess whether Democrats, again, a bill that will disproportionately help incarcerated minorities, who wants to guess whether Democrats are all running to jump onto this one and say, yeah, you know what, we can can all favor positive behavior in prison, model prison behavior. We, We can all support people getting a second chance, pulling their lives together, having a meaningful life after they've served their terms in prison. Oh, no. Oh, no. A lot of sneering Acosta style from the rest of the media and from much of, not all of the Democrats. There's some Democrats who are on board for this. And, hey, one of my maxims here or uh probably not the best word what's the word i'm looking for one of my guiding my my what my lodestar i guess i'd say is we give credit where it's due on the issue we're talking about i know him from my time at cnn van jones is someone i don't agree with him very much but on this he's just like we'll take wins where we can get them i i respect that he's in favor of prison reform on this issue he's like the administration is moving this along well. This is this is a good thing. We should applaud good things. I, I have to say, I'm almost taken aback when I see someone at CNN who is a lefty, I mean, a, a, a far-left progressive Democrat, but who at least can separate himself or herself, depending, uh, from a situation enough to say, well, you know, just because Trump does it doesn't make it bad. In this case, just because Jared Kushner's involved doesn't make it bad, Democrats, Okay. That's crazy, but a lot of them are crazy. So they're, what they're saying is this doesn't do, it doesn't do enough. That's the criticism, really, because it doesn't deal with what they call mass incarceration. Uh, it doesn't deal with the sentences that are out there, uh, the sentencing guidelines, particularly. You know, federal court, I don't think that many folks know this because a lot of people don't deal with the federal criminal justice system. There's no parole for federal sentences, and you have mandatory minimums. So if you get criminally uh, charged by the federal government and you're guilty, you're going away and you're going away for a while. In some cases, a long time. And most federal penalties, this is why 97 or 98 percent of federal criminal trials are pleaded out. Because if you are found guilty, then the then the mandatory minimums apply. And for anything, I mean, like, you know, document destruction, 10 years in federal prison. You know, lying to an FBI agent, five years in federal prison. I mean, the, you know, you, you are playing with fire if you actually go to trial, even if you're innocent. Something to keep in mind, by the way, with all this Trump-Russia collusion stuff. But there's no parole. You go away for a very long time. And for nonviolent crimes, especially what we would call malum prohibitum, as opposed to malum in se, right? Malum in se is like, don't kill your next door neighbor obvious stuff it means bad and obviously bad in a way that has to do just with what anybody would know is is moral or immoral right so malum and say is like statutes against murder statutes against rapes that we all know that bad have to prosecute have to stop that have to punish that malum prohibitum is you know you better not uh 
wander onto a, a Native American reservation by accident looking for uh, arrowheads or whatever because you're going to go to prison for three years because we have some laws that protect arrowheads on Native, you know, whatever, right? That's malum prohibitum. And by the way, when you really get down into it, the federal criminal justice system has thousands and thousands of laws, so many laws that they can't even really keep track of them because you also have regulatory bodies that have the force of the criminal justice system behind them, and they're interpreting regulations with criminal I mean, criminal uh, ramifications. It's crazy. The stuff people can go to prison for. The Wall Street Journal actually some years ago on the topic of over-criminalization was doing really, really good work because when you find out what some people go away for, you're like, really? Wow. You know, and that that's so that's a part of all this as well. This doesn't deal with that. It does. Uh, it does, however, try to make people's lives less difficult, less miserable in prison, incentivize them to become you know, productive citizens, reunite with their families afterwards. And recidivism is reduced through these programs. That's the idea. Jared Kushner has pushed it. It's gotten through in the Republican uh, Republican majority House. I'm hoping it goes through the Senate and Trump will sign it. He won't get much credit for it from his detractors because they just hate him because he's Trump. But I do think as we look at this, it's important to note that the Democrats that are opposed to this are just in, they're just acting in bad faith. They're just letting their Trump hatred overcome their desire. They would rather hate Trump than help minorities and, and everybody uh, incarcerated in prisons. They care more about Trump bashing than minority helping in the context of this bill. Tells you a lot about the elected representatives on the Democrat side. Uh, and it reminds me also, and this is a case that I'm, I'm probably going to take up uh, writing about in the next couple of days. There's a, uh, an individual from Nashville who has served, again, a drug conviction, nonviolent drug conviction, and he served over 20 years. Um over 20 years, and was released from prison. But now, his name is Matthew Charles, by the way. Uh, Now this guy has been told that he has to go back and serve the rest of his sentence. Because he had originally been classified as a career offender, he was ineligible for retroactive sentencing reductions put in place during the Obama presidency. So it's essentially this guy served 20 years, got out, is with his family, is being productive. Everyone agrees he's doing what we want former prisoners to do, which is lead productive lives, have jobs, take care of their families. And he's going to go back for 10 years. 10 years. Um, Despite a federal judge asking prosecutors to drop their appeal to get this guy sent away. Uh, He has rehabilitated in prison. And he's somebody that we should point to and say, look, you know, don't break the law. But if you break the law, take this guy's approach. Use your time in, 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 in uh, incarcerated to become productive. And I, I think I will put this out there right now. I think that Trump is going to commute this guy's sentence. I really do. I hope that he does. And I think that he will. And it's the right thing to do. I believe in mercy. I believe mercy is a critical part of justice. Also, though, and there's a fun side benefit for a lot of you. You know, you know what's coming here. You know where I'm going with this one. It will trigger the libs so much that this president is at, well, they're calling him a racist and he's terrible and everything else, that he is using his presidential authority to 
dispense justice to over-incarcerated or harshly incarcerated individuals, uh, minorities in this case, in these two cases I've told you about, will drive liberals mad because they can call him a racist all day. If he's going to continue doing things that help individuals from the black community, but also take action like this prison reform that is being pushed by Jared, his top one of his top advisors, he's just going to want to be judged on the way he treats and acts toward the black community, not what the liberal media says he says about the black community. But I, I think you can expect President Trump will give very serious consideration to and may even commute the sentence of Matthew Charles from Tennessee. And I hope he does. I hope he does. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Much more coming. Stay with me. If you love freedom and coffee, I've got your one-stop shop, your caffeination destination. That is Black Rifle Coffee. They've got everything you need. Just go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Coupon code BUCK15 will get you 15% off. Their coffee is small batch and roast to order. These guys are building a great American brand. Evan Hafer, Matt Best, some of the personalities and names you've come to know if you watch their stuff on YouTube or online. They really care about making great coffee, supporting veterans, supporting veterans' causes, and making sure that you don't have to buy from a bunch of leftist commies if you want a nice cup of joe in the morning. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck, coupon code buck15. That'll get you 15% off, and let my friends at Black Rifle know that you're part of Team Buck and heard about them on the Buck Sexton Show. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck, coupon code buck15. Type it in at checkout for 15% off. Well, this just uh, got released, team, while we were on air, and we will share some of it with you. Uh, it's dis- it's disturbing. It's disturbing stuff. I have to warn you about that beforehand. But the Broward State uh, a State Attorney's Office has released three video clips of the shooter from the Parkland High School, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. He killed 17 people. Um, this is chilling stuff. It's two of the clips were filmed the day of the massacre. He is in the videos laughing and smiling as he reveals in detail the plans that he uh, had to target the school. I, I'm going to play it. Look, it's 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 news. We want to understand the mindset of these shooters. We want to understand what signs may have been missed and what the psychology was of somebody who could do something so heinous. I just want to prepare you for it, though, before we play it, that you're now, in a sense, we're going to be stepping into the the mind of a psycho killer here who killed his fellow classmates and teachers and uh, went on a mass murder spree, a 17-year-old. Uh, so just wanted to give you fair warning of that. And, and here's some of the audio that has just been released by the uh, state attorney's office down in Florida. Play it. Hello. My name is Nick, and I'm going to be the next school shooter of 2018. My goal is at least 20 people with an AR-15 and a couple tracer rounds. I think I can do a good done. Location is Stone Douglas in Parkland, Florida. It's going to be a big event. And when you see me on the news, you'll all know who I am. 
You're all going to die. Oh, yeah. Can't wait. So, uh, here's the plan. I'm going to go take an Uber in the afternoon before 2.40. From there, I'll go into the to school campus, walk up the stairs, load my bags, and get my AR, and shoot people down at the main, was it the main courtyard? Wait, and people will die. Oh my! Uh, the voice of a of a psychopath, and you could you could really sense the the evil. Um, you could really feel the the disconnect from basic humanity. The just. The vile psychosis of this school shooter knew exactly what he was doing, planned it all out, did it for notoriety. Everything that we thought, I just, I felt that uh, we needed to hear some of that audio. I was listening to it in the break. It was just released. It was we were on air here. I don't know if there's much more to add to it than that. I, it's it's just. Hard, hard to believe that any human being could be so evil. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. He's an absolute, total tool of Chuck, of Chuck Schumer. He's a tool of Chuck Schumer and, of course, the MS-13 lover, Nancy Pelosi. I said, they're animals, and she said, how dare you say that? How dare you say that? Have you seen what they've done? Have you seen what they're doing to us, and we're taking them out of our country by the thousands. Out! Trump doing his thing last night in Nashville, a place that's high on my list of cities I'd like to go visit in the near future, but just just throwing that out there. Um, Trump was uh, was doing his usual thing. I, I just note that the the media gave him a hard time. They initially said that the uh, the crowd size was, I think, like 500. You know, because they always love to downplay the Trump crowd size things. They think that they're going to they're gonna win on that issue. And then, sure enough, uh, it turned out that they were wrong, and that Trump was right, and that was a lot closer. It was, in, it was in the thousands and not in the hundreds, which is what they were initially saying. It was a New York Times report. I was trying to find her actually sp- actual specific tweet here, but... No surprise, they they downsized Trump's crowd and assumed that he must be wrong, and today they issued a correction. The correction always gets far less attention than the initial Trump bash. Trump bashing gets a lot of attention. Everyone loved, loved Trump bash, but there you have it. Uh, Trump went on, though. Immigration, topic that I won't spend as much time today on as we have in the past. We're going to get... Uh, yeah, Mike and Brandon, by the way, we're going to get Jeff Sessions on soon to talk about what's really going on at the border right now. I feel like why not we'll check in with the Attorney General. Let's just say, hey, he likes the Freedom Hut. We'll get him to call in, hang out with us a little bit. What's up? What's up, AG? 
so he'll be joining us probably next week, maybe the week after. Assuming everything's according to plan. But Trump spoke a bit about this. He spoke about the wall, which he's still saying is going to happen. Play three. In the end, Mexico's going to pay for the wall. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. All right? I don't want to cause any problem. They make all of this money, and they do absolutely nothing to stop people from going through Mexico, from Honduras and all these other countries, the caravan, all of this stuff, they do nothing to help us. Nothing. They're going to pay for the wall, and they're going to enjoy it, okay? They're going to enjoy it. I don't think they're going to enjoy it, but I think Trump knows that. He's just trying to be a little tongue-in-cheek there. Is this wall going to happen, folks? We better win the midterms. We don't, we don't uh, maintain a majority in the House and Senate. No chance. No chance a wall gets built. Even if we maintain our House majority and our Senate majority, it's not a shoe in but the chance is basically zero if we lose House seats. Basically zero, I would say. Unless you have some kind of crazy shutdown fight where Trump's vetoing a continuing budget resolution, uh, resolution and... You know, I just I don't see that happen. I just don't see it happening. I could be wrong. But, I mean, come on, how often am I wrong? But I could be wrong. He spoke also about that issue, though, what this means for us going into the 2018. Oh, gosh, I forgot what year it is for a second. I do that sometimes lately. I'm like, what year is it? I'm getting old, folks. Uh, but he went into the, uh, or he mentioned the election and how Democrats on immigration might, in fact, the outcome. Play five. The Democrats are lousy politicians. They're lousy on policy. I happen to think them allowing open borders, which we don't allow anyway, but they make it very difficult. But them allowing open borders, that's a good issue for us. I think he's right on that one. Democrats being so dishonest about border security and so clearly lying in many cases to their constituencies about just what they really would vote, would vote for when it comes to immigration and the border. I, I think this is a weakness for them. But I, I have my problems, my concerns with a Republican-led government right now that hasn't gotten much done on immigration, folks. Let's be honest. There was a report today I saw there's a surge and I think it was, Mike, was it 100,000 or 200,000, they're saying, in the last couple of months at the border? A surge of people at the border. It was definitely 100,000 this year. It might have been 200,000. But you're seeing a lot of people trying to cross illegally, and it's because they, I think they believe that, one, amnesty is still coming, and, two, they don't think that the border is nearly as secure as we were led to believe it would be under a Trump administration. You know, for all of the liberal whining about, oh, Trump's so mean about the border and immigration, we actually haven't gotten what was promised yet. Yet. You know, maybe Trump will still come through on some of this. The big problem he's got is a Republican Congress that likes to talk a tough game about the border, but really has no interest in securing the border. They really don't. Donor class likes the free cheap, uh, not free, but the cheap labor. Donor class wants to socialize the cost of bringing in unskilled workers on the broader society. The taxpayers can foot the bill for English. 100,000 arrests. Thank you, Mike. 100,000 arrested in the last two months, folks. 100,000. That's a lot. And it's arrested. That doesn't include everybody that got through that didn't get arrested. Got a big problem at the border. 
and we have a big fight ahead over immigration with the Democrats. And I think this is going to be the issue that could determine, because if it's not this, it can't be the economy because Trump's winning on that. So they'll fight on immigration. I think Republicans can win on this, but they have to show some backbone. We've got David Afoon joining to talk about whether Israel's going to go to war soon, because no one seems to be talking about that. And then also we'll discuss a very interesting case in the U.K. Uh, about free speech and other things. Stay with me. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Clear. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. It is the most serious escalation on Israel's southern front in years. Rockets, dozens of them, fired toward Israel in the last 48 hours or so. And there are some who are saying that they are closer to a major military exchange with their uh, enemies, their Iranian proxy enemies, uh, than at any time in recent years. Uh, so let's get David Efun on the line here. He is the editor-in-chief of the Algaminer. Uh, David, what can you tell us about this most recent barrage and, and what the state of play is right now for Israel and regional security? Well, first of all, it's, it's uh, important to understand and recognize, you know, what, what this means for the actual people on the ground. We, we spoke to some of um, the individuals that live in what, what they call the Gaza envelope, the border towns of Gaza. Uh, speaking about, you know, what it means to have kids that have to run to bomb shelters. Sometimes in just 15 seconds, we spoke to a woman who who uh, deals with trauma and trauma counseling for kids in that area. And one of the rockets that were fired off yesterday landed in a in a kindergarten just an hour before the kids were, were due to show up. So it's really quite a significant traumatic experience. And often when it's reported, Without fatalities, you know, there's an assumption that, you know, things are all okay on the Israeli side. Um, but that's what citizens in southern Israel really face on a day-to-day basis. So they're resilient, strong, and positive. Luckily, as of this morning, the rockets have come mostly to a standstill. It's a very tense and uh, strained quiet that's reigning now in the Gaza border area. Uh, Hamas which runs the Gaza Strip, has been placed under a significant amount of pressure, both by Egypt and possibly even by Qatar, certainly the Israelis as well. It seems like now is not the right time for them to escalate. I mean, the uh, response will be so overwhelming. And uh, Hamas is finding itself increasingly isolated politically. And in general, it would it would find itself having a tough time uh, in an all-out war at this stage. So it seems like it's something they're looking to avoid at this stage and things will will get quieter in the coming days. But this is definitely uh, this is, as I said, an an escalation, right? You got 32 rockets fired toward uh, the Golan Heights, according to Jerusalem Post here. Uh, The Iranian funded Islamic Jihad, along with uh, Hamas, fired 180 Iranian made 122 millimeter mortar shells uh, towards uh, communities in southern Israel. So this is in more than one place they're taking rocket fire. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, this this is this is certainly the, the biggest and most significant uh, barrage that we've seen since the 2014 Gaza war. I mean, this is this is on the scale of, of a war. This this was the kind of uh, uh, barrages that, that we were seeing when when uh, Gaza, when Hamas and Islamic Jihad and the groups in Gaza are in all out conflict with the Israelis. Uh, having said that, it hasn't been sustained into the second day so far. So, you know, usually when, when, when the war, 
when the, and the last three wars have erupted uh, between Hamas and Gaza and Israel, it's continued day in and day out, and uh, the amount of rockets that are fired continues to escalate. So it looks like we've seen a, a, a brief cessation, uh, and I guess the, the hope is that this will continue. Uh, interestingly, though, has been what uh, Nikki Haley has been up to at the UN just hours ago. She called a Security Council meeting. Uh, I think it's the first time uh, that I'm aware of, certainly, that the Security Council meeting has been called to address acts of violence that were committed against Israel. Usually they're called to condemn Israel, uh, I believe unjustly so. And uh, she put forth, uh, the United States put forth a resolution condemning Hamas terrorists, internationally recognized as a terror group, and the Security Council failed to condemn the terrorist attacks on Israel. It's almost unbelievable. And Haley gave a short, sharp speech where she uh, eviscerated the, the members of the council, rightly so, and uh, really has, has taken a very central role at reinstating the U.S. position as a moral authority in the world. What is the calculation here that Israel's enemies, uh, Hamas, Iranian, IRGC, uh, all these entities that are involved in firing uh, rockets and, and mortar shells onto Israeli territory, and as you point out, even if th- there's no casualties yet from this, it, it is a terror tactic. People are having to run for their lives to bomb shelters. Uh, they're certainly trying to kill people, women, children, anyone they can in Israel. What are these groups? Is this just is this just rage firing, David, or is there some terror tie-in uh, on the political side here that they're trying to, you know, is, is there something beyond just they hate the Israelis, so they're firing off rockets? Are they trying to achieve some some short-term or long-term goal of this? Well, I think it's it's likely that there are there are actually two objectives. You have kind of a, an internal objective and an external objective. The internal objective it's about um, you know morale and mobilizing the forces and uh, getting these kind of jihadist groups to feel like they're productive in doing something and fighting the the great boogeyman that Israel is. And it helps in terms of recruitment, it helps in terms of of uh, morale and mobilization, etc. Uh, and then there's the, the external, which is uh, it, it's mostly, I would say, about drawing attention. I mean, certainly they want to kill, and, and the more blood, the more attention they get. We saw the strategy on the Gaza border. Um, the death and destruction draws the eye of the world. They don't want people to to be focused on Syria. They don't want people to be focused on North Korea or Roseanne Barr. They want people to be fo- the world media to be focused on their plight. And frankly, most of the time, the world media buys into this. And the, this conflict, even though there are conflicts in which so many more innocents are killed in Syria and Afghanistan, in in uh, in, in uh, regions throughout the world. Uh, in Afghanistan, you know, in in, uh, in Iraq, in in uh, South America, in uh, even in, in Eastern Asia, or uh, other parts of of the planet where there are persecuted peoples in Africa as well, uh, which are much more significant in terms of the scale of carnage, but they're ignored by by uh, major media outlets al- almost uh, completely, unfortunately. And the Palestinians know this, that even though they're not the most significant conflict, they're the most popular conflict. 
and they're the most uh, they have the best PR and publicity and uh, worldwide attention and they they want to play on that maximize and capitalize on it and and use that as a tool to attack Israel diplomatically and politically and also by extension the United States David, I know that things right now, I believe, have uh, have calmed down a bit in terms of the barrage uh, th- that we've seen into Israel. But would you estimate, and I know I'm asking to look in the future here, but would you estimate that it's probably, given the implacable and, and irrepressible nature of these terror groups and, and the violence that they pursue, which is really central to their identity, are, are we going to see another major Israeli military operation against Hamas, against uh, Iranian proxies in Syria in the weeks or months ahead? I mean, are we just counting down the time, or do you think there's a chance we may have yes, a I lull? Yes, I mean, that's the truth. I mean, it's a tinderbox over there. And there's there's no other path at this point. You know, this is a group that is committed to only one thing. That's conflict and a fight to the death. Um, you know, they are, you know, their infrastructure is almost completely designed their infrastructure as as a as a governor of territory, as as a, a manager of territory, everything that exists in the Gaza Strip and in, in in life in the Gaza Strip is geared towards waging war against the Jews and the Jewish state. So, you know, in that sense, it's really only a matter of time. It's it's a question of when Hamas is going to feel that now is the opportune moment to set this off. Um, the barrages will start, and we know that there are hundred, over 100,000 rockets in Gaza, maybe even more. They have weapons production facilities. They have tunnels that are dug into the Jewish state. They have uh, frogmen. They're building more sophisticated missiles by the day and looking for, for new and surprising ways to inflict harm upon Israel's citizens. Um, so in that sense, you know, I, I don't see any other way that this can go, that there's going to be another conflict at some time in the future. And Israel will be faced with the question of, of you know, what to do about it in response and how far how far they want to go. There's certainly a, a, a dialogue in Israeli public space that says you've got to take back the whole of Gaza because then this is just going to continue. We're going to have one conflict over the next every couple of years. You know? Yeah, I think it's just a question. I think it's just a question of time, but we will we'll wait and see and. We'll have you back to talk about this more. David Ifun, everybody, editor-in-chief of the Algaminer, algaminer.com for uh, Jewish and Israel news. Uh, go check it out yourself online. They do great work there. David, always a pleasure to have you on, my friend, and we'll, we'll be talking to you. Pleasure is mine, Buck. All the best. Team, we've got a big hour three uh, coming up here in just a few minutes, so stay with me for that, and uh, we'll have Raheem Kassam joining from Rome. Gonna be exciting. Content of one streaming. I've been arrested for breach of peace. I've been arrested for breach of peace. You've all watched this. You've all watched this. You've all watched this. You've all watched this. Can you get me a solicitor? Can you get me a solicitor? Can you get me a solicitor? Turn off your life feed, please. Yeah. What does that mean? 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 I'm inciting people. I'm inciting people. I'm inciting people. How have I inciting people? This is free speech. This is where we're at. That is the arrest that was live streamed of Tommy Robinson, who was standing outside a court in the United Kingdom 
live streaming what was going on there. And he was arrested, as you heard there, for breach of the peace. Now, some people are saying, hold on a second. You can't stand outside of a courthouse in the United Kingdom and talk about what's going on. That's somehow illegal. And what are the political ramifications here? What else is at play? What's even going on with this trial? Uh, To answer all those questions, we are joined from Rome tonight by our friend uh, Rahim Kassam, who is the author of No-Go Zones and also a fellow at the Gatestone Institute, usually UK-based, but he's uh, in Italia tonight. Uh, Great to have you back, Rahim. Thank you for having me. All right, so this Tommy Robinson thing has become uh, an international story because people are saying, well, hold on a second, the UK, it's not America, but we think of it as a place that's very rule of law. They, They respect freedoms. And what happened? How can you get arrested outside of a trial who is this guy, by the way, also? Give us a little bit of the backstory for folks who don't know this. He's English Defense League founder. What's that? Just what's going on, Raheem? Yeah, look, I mean, just to give you a bit of background about Tommy himself, he's a working-class lad, you know, a true deplorable from a place outside of London called Luton, working-class town, working-class boy. Uh, doesn't have any airs and graces about him. He is, you know, just, just calls it as he sees it, just like... Uh, uh, many of the rest of us. And uh, about 10 years ago, he started this group called the English Defence League, which was uh, broadcasting out there um, things about sort of mass rape and grooming gangs that were, were perpetrating, you know, what I guess what you would only call, you know, sort of sexual atrocities against mostly predominantly young uh, white British girls uh, by mostly, again, Muslim Pakistani migrants. And, of course, for that crime. He was labeled as far right and fascist and all this sort of thing. Uh, Of course, you know, nowadays, 10 years later, we realize that he was absolutely correct. It wasn't just happening in Luton. It was happening in Rotherham, in Oxford, in Bristol, in London, I think 13 cities across the United Kingdom. So Tommy has made it his his job. It's made it his uh, life's work to make sure that justice is done in these areas. As you say, live streaming from outside uh, a courtroom in Leeds uh, just the other day, and he's been doing this across the country, making sure that these people are standing trial, making sure that they are uh, uh, seeing justice. And, of course, the British establishment not too keen on that, not least because Tommy doesn't do what the British establishment and the media classes do, which is call them what they are, Muslim rape and grooming gangs. They call them Asian rape and grooming gangs. It's, a, it's sort of a euphemism to, to try and hide the Islamic supremacism that plays into this whole um, this whole sort of uh, mass rape scandal that we have going on across the United Kingdom. Um, so that's, I mean, in, in brief, I suppose, a little background on him. Uh, in terms of the case, what we saw last Friday is him standing outside a courtroom, outside the court itself, on public property, live streaming on Facebook, doing nothing but reading from newspaper articles about what we already knew about this grooming gang that was on trial, what was already in the public domain. And as you heard in the clip you played there, Bud, arrested for breach of the peace. There was no breach of the peace. People can go on Facebook, they can go on YouTube, uh, they can watch this whole thing an hour and ten minutes long, I believe it is, in totality. Uh, He's not screaming, he's not shouting, he's not causing a ruckus or a riot. uh, And the police bundled him into a van, uh, and, and I'll tell you what, I'm, I suppose you have some follow-up questions, uh, but what happened next was absolutely extraordinary. 
Now, just just to note for all of our listeners across the country, here, this is essentially the equivalent of if if I were standing outside a courthouse in America and I was suddenly arrested for disturbing the peace, right? Different terminology, but similar idea, which I know from having worked in law enforcement, disturbing the peace generally means whatever the cop on the scene wants it to mean, they could take you downtown. But it's also usually something where you're in, you're in jail for an hour or two, and then you usually get out without a big deal. That's not what happened in the UK, folks. Uh, Raheem, tell them, tell them what ended up happening to Mr. Robinson here. Well, that's exactly right. And, and he expected to be held and released. When you're arrested for something like breach of the peace, you are typically perhaps drunk on the street and, uh, you know, or, or engaged in some sort of low-level football or soccer hooliganism, and you're held in a cell for a couple of hours and, and, and you leave. And effectively, I understand that that's what he was told uh, would happen, and therefore he didn't manage to see his own long-term standing solicitor, his own lawyer. Uh, instead, he was marched in front of Court 12 in Leeds Crown Court and held in contempt of court. Uh, contempt of court in the United Kingdom, for those that don't know, is, is a very sort of archaic and antediluvian thing whereby you can be told that your presence, your, your speech, your presence, your, your inferences that you may or may not be making about an ongoing trial uh, could actually prejudice the outcome of the trial. And uh, the judge presiding over this rape and grooming gang case, Jeffrey Marson, uh, effectively held him in contempt of court, said to him, I've watched the video of you standing outside this very courtroom from three hours ago, uh, and I find that you may well have prejudiced the case. Now, again, uh, I'm not a judge and I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but there's nothing in the video that I can see or none of the legal experts that have advised me over the past few days could see that could that could have potentially prejudiced uh, the trial at all. This, for me, seems like a completely political arrest. Tommy Robinson was obviously outside campaigning against multiculturalism, state-sponsored multiculturalism, calling them Muslims, not Asians, um, and was therefore uh, locked up, banged up as a result of this. So contempt of court. We're starting to have this discussion now. We're starting to have the discussion about what we have in the United Kingdom. Again, reporting restrictions on cases like this where the media is not allowed to tell the public what's going on. And to add insult to injury, but uh, the judge actually added reporting restrictions on Tommy's arrest and sentencing in addition to the grooming and rape gang uh, trials. Those reporting restrictions were lifted yesterday, but only after a massive fight back uh, by both people who marched on Downing Street this weekend. I was there in person and indeed representations from media outlets across the United Kingdom. So 2018, United Kingdom uh, banning conservative journalists from coming into the country and now arresting and sentencing people uh, simply for opposing state-sponsored multiculturalism. I mean, one year in prison, folks, that's that's real time for not actually doing anything that any of us would describe as as even a little bit wrong. And when you you mentioned the, the politics of this, uh, Raheem, and I, I just want to, for the purposes of background, I mean, you mentioned grooming gangs. I'm only familiar with the Rotherham case. Uh, and for those listening, this the more you find out about what we're talking about here, it's just the most horrifying stuff imaginable. I mean, you have some of these instances of, again, predominantly Muslim South Asian men who are 20s, 30s, perhaps a bit older, who are uh, sexually assaulting 10, 11-year-olds, right? I mean, Raheem, this is 
completely despicable stuff that it seems like some in the media in the UK don't really want to give much attention to. They don't give much attention to it. And when they do give much attention to it, they don't give much prominence to it on their pages. Very rarely has this made it onto the front pages of the papers. I won't say never, because it has done. Uh, And it's not just Rotherham. Uh, uh, Rotherham is the sort of highest profile case because it's the case that saw the largest amount of cover-up from local authorities and indeed local police. But again, as I said earlier, it's it's happened across a minimum of 13 towns and cities across the United Kingdom, and not in small numbers either. I mean, Rotherham saw 1,400 young mostly white girls groomed and raped. For those who are unfamiliar, and I spend a lot of time in the States, uh, unfamiliar with the term grooming, this is where they get young girls hooked on drugs, they get them hooked on uh, uh, money, uh, that that these, again, mostly Muslim uh, uh, men are are giving them as as sort of uh, handouts. It's it's effectively a human trafficking uh, organization. but, but they're organizations based in localities. There's not a sort of wide net that's cast across the United Kingdom, which goes to show and goes to prove that what Tommy's been talking about, which is effectively Islamic supremacism that's taking place and, and, and manifesting itself in a sexual nature in these towns, is entirely true and entirely demonstrable. But as soon as anybody starts talking about it, and I've experienced this myself, especially being a former Muslim talking about this myself, um, you are shut down. You are shut out of the conversation. You are called a racist, a fascist, a xenophobe. Uh, in your parlance, a deplorable. Um, these are the realities that we face nowadays to the point where actually when I entered the United Kingdom on Friday, I advised the lawyer in advance of me landing in my own country where I was born and raised, where I have a passport, where I have tax residency, everything like that. I had to advise a lawyer, but... If I am arrested upon entry, here are the steps that I require you to take. It, 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 it makes me well up with tears that I have concerned myself with that in my own country. And I think why it resonates so much over here in America is that we can see the forces of the regressive left, really the, the totalitarian uh, progressivism that has become quite fashionable in political circles, including much of the Democrat Party in this country, that it, it's going beyond even just social and cultural pressure on people not to talk about certain things and and not to have certain kinds of discussions that in the UK, they're now harnessing the power of the state to actually actively suppress under threat of force speech about multiculturalism, politically incorrect topics. And I think we see that, Raheem, and say, well, how long before we've got that on our own doorstep? Well, the long march to the institutions is almost entirely complete in the United Kingdom. Uh, The political left uh, controls and it's all swathes of the left. By the way, it's not uh, it's not sort of a, uh, a, a you know one singular left. But in some cases, it's the liberal left. In some cases, it's the totalitarian left. Uh, but the left it controls our education system. It controls our judiciary. It controls our parliament. It controls our government. You guys, I'm sure, are familiar with how many frustrations we're running into with the Brexit vote at the moment in, in, in the United Kingdom too. And this is all emanating from the political left. So, so you know, this, as I said in, my, in, in, in the subtitle of my book that you were so kind enough to read out called No-Go Zones, the subtitle is how Sharia is coming to a neighborhood near you. Well, in addition to that, you know, the, the, the totalitarian left is also coming to a neighborhood near you. And I'm sure in lots of uh, parts of America, it's already wildly present.
Raheem, I, I know that you're in Rome, and we don't want to keep you from enjoying some very fine gnocchi uh, and prosecco. But <laughs> but can we uh, can we hold you through a break here? We come back. I just want you to tell us what's going on in Italy because there is there's a bit of a financial and political meltdown going on that people say could spread to the rest of the world, including us here. That we just saw our 401ks get uh, take a bit of a hit because of what's going on in Italy. So can you stay with us and talk about that for a couple minutes? Absolutely, I'd We've be got- delighted. We've got Raheem Kassam uh, joining us from Rome tonight. Uh, Raheem is the author of No Go Zones and also a fellow at the Gatestone Institute. We're talking about the crisis in Italy that could affect your pocketbook in just a moment. Okay, everybody. So we just spoke with Raheem Kassam, who is the author of No Go Zones, about the uh, sentencing of a British activist to 13 months in prison for talking about a trial that has political ramifications about multiculturalism. A lot of folks don't want to talk about that. But there's some stuff going on in Italy, too. Raheem, tell us what is the latest. You are on the ground there having a rough time. I am. You can hear the uh, clinking of glasses behind me. I'm on the cobble streets uh, of central <laughs> Rome at the moment. The pizza uh, is amazing uh, there, folks. It's, it's delicious, yes. Oh, it, it, it's just a fantastic city, but mired in both political and financial instability at the moment in no small part thanks to the central bankers of the European Central Bank and the central government of Brussels. Of course, there's been, uh, you know, 15 to 20 years now of technocratic government here in Italy uh, post-financial crisis. Uh, the idea that the Italians cannot control their own finances, cannot control their own government, it has been opposed upon them um, by the European Union for so long. And in the last election that took place just last month, the Italian people finally said, no, we've had enough of it. We want our democracy back. So they voted uh, half for a, uh, a populist left-wing party, sort of a Bernie Sanders-style party called the Five Star Movement, and the other half for a populist right-wing party, sort of a, a, a Trump kind of party called Lega, uh, which is a populist nationalist party. And the two of these parties came together and they tried to form a coalition government. Well, the president of Italy, very much an establishment guy, he has a constitutional role, much like I suppose our queen does in in the United Kingdom, a constitutional obligation, in fact, to help a government form. But he rejected the idea of these two populist left-wing and right-wing parties coming together to form a government. Why? Because they are both massively anti-euro as a currency and anti-integration to the European Union as a political and, and, and fiscal and indeed military union, as Emmanuel Macron uh, went to your U.S. Congress and uh, evangelized about uh, just, I think, two months ago. That has left the country in pretty dire straits, and the capital markets are really taking it out on Italy at the moment. And as you were right to say before the break, uh, it's impacting your 401ks. It's impacting global markets. The, the instability that we're seeing as regards the euro as a currency and the instability as we're seeing uh, sort of uh, all levels, foreign direct investment, it, Italian uh, engagement in the wider economy. I have to tell you this. The reason I have been both, uh, I have been, I was going to say both, but in Prague, Budapest, London, and Rome, all within the last seven days, is because the European right is a very, very small thing. And it requires, and especially in the Anglosphere, a very small thing. And it requires people like me to effectively go across the world in, in seven days to, to talk about these things and to raise awareness of these things because the media establishment and the financial establishment don't want you to really know what's going on out there. I mean, Lager and the Five Star had a pretty comprehensive 58-page coalition plan 
about how Italy should be governed. And it was a democratic vote that led the people of Italy to choose this government. But the Italian president, at the behest of the European Central Bank, said, no, we don't want a 15% flat tax rate. We don't want a 15% corporate tax rate because you guys are against the centralization of the euro and the centralization of the European Union. And of course, now Italy, it's basically without a government. And it's going to remain effectively without a government. They're talking about holding elections again in June. It may be as long as September. And this has serious ramifications for people, not just in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in, in China, all across the world. Uh, it's, it's a pretty dire situation here, Buck. And, and, and I've got to tell you, I've been walking around the streets of Rome, which is a pretty metropolitan liberal elite city. But even people here are, frankly, disgusted with what President Mattarella did this week. Well, we are going to have to let you go and enjoy some carbonara and maybe some Amata Triana or however you say it. <laughs> I'm devastated. I'm devastated. Uh, go, 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 go enjoy some fantastic cuisine and uh, some Chianti. And everybody, Raheem Kassam is the author of No Go Zones. Great book. Pick it up for yourself. And uh, Raheem, when you're done over there on the other side, come into uh, D.C., come into the swamp. We'll have you on the show live, all right? Thank you so much, Buck. I'll see you soon. Talk to you, my friend. Uh, all right, team, so a bit of international flavor tonight on the Buck Saxon Show. That's how we like it. I can't believe I messed up the name of that dish, though. Amatriciana. There we go. Amatriciana. I had to actually Google it after I said it because I messed it up. I haven't been in Italy in a while. I miss it. The food's amazing. All right, we'll be right back. Stay with me. What is toxic masculinity? I ask you, my friends. What the heck is toxic masculinity? And And... This is one of these things where I'm actually going to tell you what I, when I, when I look up the definition, and this is from a website called Geek Feminism, which I think you know all you need to based on the name, but toxic masculinity is one of the ways in which the patriarchy, this is the definition of it, right? Let's start with the definition, then I'll tell you why I'm talking about it. One of the ways in which the patriarchy is harmful to men it refers to the socially constructed attitudes that describe the masculine gender role as violent, unemotional, sexually aggressive, and so forth. So just to put this into a little bit of a context, my favorite 80s action movies are really all a giant celebration of toxic masculinity in its most unadulterated, unobstructed, all-in form. Right. It's just a giant bacchanal of toxic masculinity. Now, if you're on the left, though, if you're a radical feminist type, you you think this is terrible, that it's the essential ingredient in the patriarchy, which is the male suppression of women. I know a lot of the women listening to the show right now. And by the way, thank you, ladies, for listening. Unlike a lot of other talk radio shows, we have a lot of women who listen to the Buck Sexton show, which is very nice. I'm talking in the percentages. Just saying, just saying, folks, ladies appreciated. You know, the marketers, the, the team that actually has to keep the show on the air, uh, good to know that there are ladies listening too. So high five, Team Buck, ladies. Uh, but a lot of you are probably laughing. You're like, patriarchy, please. Like, my husband does whatever I tell him whenever I tell him to do it, right? I mean, you know, this, this is this, this left-wing, new-wave feminism is detached from reality. But I wanted to give you a definition of toxic masculinity because I just couldn't believe this piece in the New Yorker, which is not something I read very often. I do read it sometimes, usually to make fun of it. But I thought this was a joke. 
I actually read this and couldn't tell at first that it was serious. And the piece is seven signs that your man's masculinity is non-toxic. Now, let me tell you, to all of the gentlemen listening right now, all of the folks who are part of the Freedom Hut, all the dudes across the country, let me, your masculinity is toxic, my friends. I just want to, I want to prepare you for this. You, you are not going to be happy with these seven signs of non-toxic masculinity. Uh, well, actually, you'll be very happy with it because you'll know that you are toxic. Uh, but he, here, this piece, I couldn't think that it was real. I couldn't believe that it was real at first. But sure enough, learn something new every day. First up, he carries... So remember, these are the signs that your man's masculinity is non-toxic. Ooh, splendid. One, he carries a tote bag that is at once pro-environment, pro-feminism, and pro-reading. I will tell you, I've never even seen a tote bag that fits into those categories. We also have a name for this. It's called a man bag, and I do not recommend it. Number two, when he goes into a sports bar to use the bathroom, he buys a glass of white wine to be polite. Okay, first of all, why wine instead of beer? Like, why be bougie about it if you're going to try to And I don't disagree with the principle of spending some money if you're going to use their facilities, but you buy white wine, you're trying to to show off, you tell everybody about about your Prius that you've gotten in the ugliest color possible, so it's the most notable, so people are like, oh, look at that lime green Prius that Virtue Signaler is driving. Number three on this list of your masculinity being non-toxic, he openly cries during Pixar movies, even the parts that aren't sad, just beautiful. Are they serious? They really, they really think that's a thing? Four, he opens the doors for women at work, but they're metaphorical doors like the ones that lead to promotion. Yay, let's all break the glass ceiling together. Um, that stands for itself. Uh, he makes references to Kurt Vonnegut because he's generally interested, uh, genuinely interested to hear other people's opinions of Vonnegut's work. He never makes reference to David Foster Wallace. I'll have you know right now, people that bring up Kurt Vonnegut in any context, unless for some reason it's like a Jeopardy answer, are not people that you particularly want to hang out with. And then finally, he strictly follows all traffic laws when he plays Grand Theft Auto. He does not have a Twitter account. Well, the Twitter account part I can't quibble with. Uh, People can make their own choices about that. I obviously have a Twitter account. But if you follow the traffic laws in Grand Theft Auto, you're not somebody that I think anybody should hang out with. (laughs) I'm just going to say it. Forget about toxic masculinity. You may just be the worst. The worst. So, yeah. Gentlemen, high five yourself. Your masculinity is toxic. So is mine. Own it. Lean into it. Love it. The ladies do. We'll be right back. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. I feel like that the rock music starts out a little better, then at the end it just kind of sounds a little like noise. We've got to get some better rock music for our rock roll call, because obviously the rock music has to be high quality on this show. If you want to be a part of Roll Call, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And uh, we're not going to give out the other email, because producer Mike, you have a new mission 
and that is to get us a professional email address for roll call. We need to do this, man. Let's get a real email address. Not that Gmail's not real, but... Or at least let's lean into it and get an AOL address, you know? We can be like rollcall579er at AOL.com and just, you know, you've got mail. Like, just, just be that guy. Just be that. I feel like at this point, to have an AOL account... I know, some of you listening, you've got AOL accounts. It's all right. It's kind of like uh, having a car that's just about to go classic, but right now is just kind of old. But any day now... It could go classic. We're going to go from a clunker that nobody wants to, ooh. You know what? This is This is actually true about uh, the old version of the iPad uh, is because it's basically a hard drive that you can store a tremendous amount of songs on uh, is actually pretty valuable because you, you, just, you just don't have people uh, who have, or the, sorry, did I say iPad? I mean iPod. Right, the original iPod uh, is you can store like thirty or forty thousand songs on it, and uh, it's I, at least it was for a while kind of a collector's item. I, I might be some of you are going to ch- fact check me right now on you know on eBay or whatever, but for a while I'm talking about the very first one. Anyway, roll call. Here we go. Paul, hey Buck, could you please do a segment on jobs for the upcoming election? I think swing voters will be swayed by two main issues. Immigration and economic strength or jobs. I would like to know the real numbers. Um, that's Paul, that's a great suggestion, and I am happy to do that. Um, I obviously can't do it today on the show because I need to do a little research to present to you. Uh, so let me say that we will put a pin in that one, and we will get to it. Uh, but, you know, immigration, economic strength. Look, there was a, I want to listen to it. Uh, probably tonight if I have time, although I have time for very little these days. But uh, Nate Silver, who does a podcast over at 538, you know, he's a Democrat, but he's a numbers, a number cruncher guy, came very famous for predicting everything correctly in 2012, down to some real accuracy. I mean, the guy's, look, the guy's got some number crunching skills. Uh, but I haven't heard the podcast yet, but I've been seeing some of the scuttlebutt. Isn't that a fun word to say? Oh, the scuttlebutt. The hullabaloo, if you will. The... Michigas, I think I used that word correctly. Some of you might be better with the Yiddish than me. Uh, I probably misused that one now. You're going to make fun of me. You're going to say you're going to say I'm Meshugana, uh, Meshuga. Uh, anyway, Brandon, am I getting those wrong? Meshugana, I'm right. Yeah, okay, I'm close enough. So, anyway, and producer Mike, if you know what uh, the other one I said is, I have no idea. But what was I saying to you about? Um, well, I just completely derailed myself, Brandon. What was I talking about a second ago? I have I literally totally lost it. What? Oh, okay. Well, there you have it. I don't even know. Well, the point is, Paul, yes. Sounds good. Economic strength. I'm uh I'm into it. We will do it. Uh Glenn, next up there. Shields Highbuck, regarding the reparations happy hour, is it not some sort of insult they're giving alcohol to minorities? Isn't that a negative stereotype that is frowned upon by the Native American community, specifically the very real problem of alcoholism in that community? Isn't this type of stunt mockery of minorities? Lots of ways to look at this type of, key, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Glenn, I know you're thinking outside the box on this one. Um, I think you're probably taking the, taking the optics of this a little further than you need to. 
Uh, is this because it's mostly remember the reparations issue is mostly for African-Americans. And so there's no, you know, my people, Irish people, which I'm only really half Irish. I mean, I'm kind of overplaying my Irishness. Oh, top of the morning. You know, I'm not really not really as Irish. As I like to pretend I'm about half, roughly half, I think is fair to say. But, you know, my people have much more of a connection with alcohol, for example, than a lot of other people. There's no connection with alcohol and African-Americans and any kind of negative stereotyping. So I don't I don't really see it. And as to uh, uh, Native Americans or indigenous people, uh, I'm I'm guessing there probably were very few, if any, at the event. Right. So it, it's really not not uh, something that I would give too much, too much more thought to if I were you. Uh, so there you have it. Hold on a second. We have Lanny, who writes, Hey, Buck, greetings from Arizona and loving the show every day. Keep up the great work. My question is about free speech. Why is it that when you say something about blacks or Muslims, joke or not, you can be called out or fired? But if you're a lefty, say the most vile things and nothing happens. Isn't that hypocritical? Seems like more now than ever, free speech is only for leftists, but not for others. Thoughts, Lanny. Lanny, there is definitely a double standard. And I hope I've been addressing that not just on today's show, but as a general issue on this show. There is definitely a double standard. Uh, Now, there's also the severity of commentary, right? Or severity of transgression that I think reasonable people have some idea of. You know, it's, it's a different thing. Right. It's, it's a different level of insult in our society to say, like I was just saying, oh, you know, Irish people, you know, we, we like to drink, you know, Guinness or beer or whatever. That's different than, say, dropping a racial slur. One is considered understandably more offensive, more egregious than the other. But if you're talking about what the left gets away with, what the Democrat Party gets away with when it comes to uh, commentary about women commentary about any what they say about black conservatives absolutely a huge double standard and it's it's tough for us to combat and and get around right it's not it's not an easy thing we can talk about a double standard but it's not an easy thing to make it go away so yes you're right there's a double standard and you know with uh look it's an on it's the marketplace of ideas right ongoing conversation about the Boundaries of of free speech and polite society, uh, you know what what'll get you in trouble and what won't. It's not always clear cut. I always think about how as a radio host, and this is pretty crazy. If you go back and look at a lot of radio hosts, Pat, who have become incredibly successful, many of them had bumps in their careers that maybe got them a little bit of heat or got them fired twenty or thirty years ago. But today, it would just be your career's over. So the risk taking of commentary, folks radio tv from 20 or 30 years ago is not something you could do anymore the risks have gotten greater there's no question about it and you would not rebound your career you you wouldn't get a second chance in the marketplace uh so this is obviously a very complicated issue i want to keep talking about it but there there you have it for right now amy next up here in the roll call hey buck excellent show (laughs) thank you amy you pay attention to what gets me to read things I am confused by Trey Gowdy. By the way, if people write me funny critical commentary, I will air it, right? I, I just am not going to you know, say blankety-blank, you're the blanking worst, you blanking stink. Blank. That's not fun. For, you know, 
I read that and chuckle to myself, but that's not fun for over the air. Um, but if you want to like make fun of my poofy hair or something, by all means, I'll read that. I'm confused by Trey Gowdy. I have so much respect for the man. Why does he keep defending the FBI when so many others that I respect insist that it has been corrupted? We have Grassley, Gomer, Meadows, Nunez, etc., fighting tooth and nail to bring things to light. I haven't heard much from Ted Cruz or Mike Lee, who are such strict constitutionalists. Only the cover-up seems partisan to me. Please don't blame never-Trumpism, as I suspect there are many reformed never-Trumpers out there like myself. I have changed my views in light of his service to, to our nation. What is going on in D.C.? I am here in the swamp. And will we ever know the details about the huge internal struggle that is occurring here? Amy, A-plus question. Hmm. Now how do I give it? I'm, I'm hoping for at least a B-plus answer here, although I might get a gentleman's B-minus or something. Uh, what's up with Trey Gowdy? Here's what I think's going on. I think there's some good people who are ethical, who are honest, who are not just only self-interested grandstanders, who are torn because they want to protect the integrity and the reputation of the, of the FBI and the Department of Justice in this whole process. Now, that's a good thing, but I think that some of them take it too far. And I think that it's also easy to forget the totality of all the information we have at this point that we've been getting over time, because that's what really gives you the sense that there was foul play here. When you look at everything together, then you really know that something, that there is a funky smell, as I like to say. There's just a funky smell. What's that funky smell? Uh, So that's one part of it. Why are we not seeing... Some other conservatives out there like Ted Cruz or Mike Lee going to bat for Trump on this one. You know, I kind of want to ask them that. Maybe we should uh, we could get Ted or Mike on the show at some point. So I want to ask them that. I'm very curious because I agree. Look, Rudy Giuliani did great things for the city of New York, and, and I'm forever grateful to him for that. But if you're asking me who I think is a, is a sharper legal mind to deal with the onslaught from Mueller and his squad, I'd rather have Ted Cruz, whom, by the way, I think would be a great Supreme Court justice if Kennedy retires. I'm just saying. I'd rather have Ted Cruz uh, leading the charge against the resistance than Giuliani. That's not to say Giuliani's incompetent or, or not good. It's just, I, I, I would, wouldn't, wouldn't you want Ted as your defense attorney? I think I'd want Ted as my defense attorney. So, or even just making the case about the law publicly. It's sort of in a way that Dershowitz, although, you know, Dershowitz, you don't know what you're always going to... I like the Dersh. You know, Dersh has got some flavor. You know, he's good. He's good on TV. But, uh, you know, you don't always know where the Dersh is going to come out. He's terrible on guns, by the way. I mean, you ask him, he thinks guns are icky. So keep that in mind. Uh, but, Amy, it's a great question. I give myself maybe a B on the answer. Uh, your question was better than my answer, but it's something we'll continue to tackle here on the show. Speaking of the show, that's going to be it for uh, this edition of the Buck Saxon Show. Uh, already getting all systems go for the uh, podcast, which I will be launching, planning to launch next week, assuming we can get everything together. Uh, so that'll be a lot of fun. And that's what we've got for today. Please do uh, pass the word around about the show. It really helps. I love hearing from people on Facebook who say, hey, I learned about you from so-and-so who's Team Buck. We keep doing that, and we've got great things ahead, folks. We really do. And I can't wait to give you my announcement about why I'm in the swamp. I'm just contractually obligated to keep quiet about it for right now but good things good things i promise 
Until tomorrow, my friends, we all have our orders. Shields high. You know, you can train your dog as much as you want. You can teach him to sit and roll over and fetch and all that good stuff. But digging is a part of doggy DNA. And when your dog decides it's time to get under the fence, if you just have a standard fence in your backyard, dog can get out. And you don't want that because then that can be a risk to the dog. It could mean that you could lose the dog for hours. You got to go search and find the little guy. It also means that predators, by the way, can get in because underneath your fence is open territory, right? Guess what? Dig Defense takes care of all of that. It is genius. It solves the problem that pet owners have of dogs that go under the fence. It comes in a bunch of different models and sizes. It'll fit your needs exactly, and you can install it with a hammer and a pair of gloves. If you've got pets digging under the fence, check out Dig Defense right now. Available online at Lowe's, Menards, Wayfair, and StopTheDig.com. That's StopTheDig.com to stop your pets from digging under that fence.